Welcome to the Not Your Average Gun Girls podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. We are your hosts. I'm Emily Valentine from Stommy Tactical. And hey, everyone. I'm Amy Robbins from Alexa Athletica. We are Your Average Gun Girls and want to bring you a podcast that mirrors the way we live our lives. We are self-reliant, stylish, and eager to inspire women to feel confident in defending themselves while also staying true to their lifestyle. We'll be talking all things from concealed carry to our favorite lipstick and everything in between. This podcast is intended to support and empower women. We want you to be armed with the right tools and education to be self-reliant and prepared to act in your own self-defense. This episode is brought to you by ConcealedCarry.com, the Concealed Carry Community's number one resource for training, education, and concealed carry weapon law information. Check out their Reciprocity Map Builder Tool where you can build your own custom reciprocity map, especially if you have multiple state permits. ConcealedCarry.com has a huge library of articles about training, gear reviews, and industry news. ConcealedCarry.com also has one of the nation's largest networks of firearms and self-defense instructors. Chances are they have classes and instructors near you. Also, look into the Concealed Carry Gun Tools app, which takes many of these online tools and puts them in the palm of your hand, free of charge and free of ads, available for Apple and Android devices. How's it going, Amy? It's another day, another week. Things are moving they are. They are a little slower than normal this week. I don't know if anyone else has gotten hit with this flu bug, but somehow I got hit and I got hit hard this weekend. <laughs> so I'm just trying to recover from that and not infect anybody else. So I yeah. It's going around. I mean, I'm still, I thought I was getting better since we got back from Chicago. And then just yesterday I started feeling it again. And I'm like, come on, I got to kick this. I think it's like <laughs> a drastic <laughs> drop in temperature across like the United States. Yeah, what's up with that? I, fall took a vacation this year. It decided it didn't even want to show up. It just, it just said goodbye. I'm, I'm, hi guys, hi and bye. It didn't even want to show its face in Texas. I'm concerned that means that like we're gonna have like some insane winter. I, I hope that is not what that means, but but it could. But I'm glad we're back this week. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Gun Girls. We had a great time chatting last week with our girl chat. We talked about the gun buying experience and offered some suggestions of what Emily and I think uh, the gun industry might be able to improve on just a little bit. would love to hear your thoughts on that episode. And if you have had similar experiences when you go to spend $1,300 on a rifle, and I want to know what your packaging looks like. So, so let us know. We had a lot of fun. If you missed that episode, check it out um, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all the great places you can check out our podcast. So we were supposed to have a fantastic guest last week, and we it was such an awesome guest that we decided we were going to move it to today. And we are so glad that he is here with us. Emily, mm-hmm. introduce our guest today because I can't wait to jump right in and just get to talking to him about yeah, we, yeah, um, all this knowledge. A lot to talk about. So today we have attorney Andrew Bronca. He is currently in his third decade of practicing law and is an internationally recognized expert on the law of self-defense of the United States. Andrew is a guest lecturer at the FBI Academy, a former guest instructor at the Sig Sauer Academy, and an NRA certified instructor in pistol, rifle, and personal protection. He is also a master class competitor in the International Defensive Pistol Association. Andrew also provides use of force instruction to people from all walks of life, including law enforcement officers, armed security personnel, concealed carriers, and anyone else interested in winning the legal fight as well as the physical fight. Andrew escaped from Massachusetts three years ago and currently lives in Colorado. Hi, Hi Andrew. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Andrew, how did, okay, reading back through your bio, how in the world did you have time to come on our show today? You were a busy man. 
I, I love to come on the podcast. It's one of my great pleasures or vices. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Uh, we know that you've just got a wealth of knowledge to just convey to our audience. You know, we have a really interesting mix of men and women that listen mm-hmm. to this podcast. Uh, but what we've really been finding out lately is that a lot of the people that are starting to listen are, are joining in because they're either something has whetted their appetite just a little bit and they want to find out a little bit more about uh, this defensive lifestyle. And so they're, they're going out, they're trying to figure out what tool is going to work for them. And specifically today, we want to talk about um, the law of when it pertains to those people that chose to have a firearm for their self-defense tool. And uh, because I think that's so important um, and there's so much information that people might not know about. So I want to get your thoughts on that. Um, you know, I, I would love to know you, you're, you're an attorney. You do a lot of stuff. And you even have a, had a book that just came out, right? Well, the, uh, the first edition of this book came out in 1998. So we've been doing this for quite some time. But the, the current edition is just about a year old at this point. In fact, here it is. Uh, third edition of The Law of Self-Defense, forward by Masa Yub, for those of you who know who Masa is. Uh, great, great colleague and friend of mine was kind enough to write the foreword for the book. Uh, and that's the most current book. We also have dozens and dozens of uh, DVDs that we do, online classes, live classes all over the country. Although I'm trying to reduce the live class load. Last year, I traveled about 40 weeks a year. That's, that oh, was my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's a, that is definitely a busy travel schedule for sure. So, um, well, that, that is very exciting. Where can people go and check out? You said they've got these training videos online. Where can people go and check that out? So I generally actually usually recommend people uh, initially check out our free resources because we put a lot of content out there for free. Uh, one of those is our Patreon page where we have uh, about a, the last week's worth of our blog posts and videos available freely for everyone. You don't need to be a patron. And that's simply at lawofselfdefense.com forward slash Patreon. So people can go there and access content for free. And every week, every Wednesday, we do our own live show, 30 to 45 minutes on self-defense law. That's free to watch live or for 24 hours. We have a recording available and people can find that at lawselfdefense.com forward slash show. So same URLs, uh, just forward slash Patreon or forward slash show. And in our experience, once people get a taste of that free content, they invariably become a patron or, or purchase a book or a DVD or something. That's awesome. And of course, we'll, we'll put links to that when we post yeah. on our social media pages as well. But Let's just dive right in. I have, I've got so many questions, um, especially as someone who I have my license to carry. I prefer to carry a firearm with me as my preferred self-defense tool when I can. You know, uh, Emily and I both have been doing a lot of traveling lately, and we're mm-hmm. finding out very quickly that there's a lot of states that don't recognize the places we have to travel. They don't recognize um, our license to carry, nor do they really even allow their citizens to have an easy time to obtain a firearm. Um, so have to have some alternative methods at that point. But as far as, you know, you get your license to carry, you decide you want to start carrying, is the next question to ask, is it, is it okay to say, okay, if you have to use it in a self-defense situation, now what? Well, yes, uh, really almost earlier than that. I mean, prudent people like yourselves and like myself, I've, I've carried a gun for personal protection every day of my adult life. I still do today, uh, wherever it's legally permitted, of course, which uh, fortunately for me is most places, not all places, unfortunately. Uh, but prudent people prepare to defend themselves and their families against 
criminal predation, right? That's why we carry a gun. Our tagline here at Law of Self-Defense is you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. That's why we have the gun. On the I loved that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you also need to know the law so you're hard to convict and you really need to do them in parallel. So you don't wait to learn how to use a gun until the moment you're under attack. That would be pointless. It's too late then. Mm-hmm. You can't worry about the legal issues only at the moment you're being attacked. It's too late then. You have to prepare for the legal fight the same way you need to prepare for the physical fight, which is you need to acquire defensive tools, which in the legal context would be knowledge. You need to get training in those. You need to practice those just like you dry fire a handgun. You need to mentally practice your knowledge of self-defense law. Um, And then you need to be able to put those into effect in a stressful situation. So it's actionable for you. Uh, There's no sense carrying a gun on your person if when the fight happens, you can't get it out and effectively deploy it. Uh, There's no sense sitting through even one of my classes if that's all you're ever going to do and never think about this stuff again, because in the moment of crisis, you won't be able to apply that knowledge in an actionable way. Now, the good news is that the law of self-defense is relatively straightforward. There's only five elements of a legal claim of self-defense, only up to five, sometimes not even that many. So this stuff is not rocket science. Yeah, It's a relatively straightforward framework, and it's pretty consistent across the 50 states. So it's about 80% the same from state to state. Of course, the 20% difference matters. It could be the difference between a, a conviction and an acquittal. But the general principles are mostly the same because this is very old law. This goes back to old English law hundreds of years ago. It goes back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. So it has very old roots, and we've, we've transferred that law all the way to the modern era. I'm talking now about defensive persons in particular, of yourself and of others. The bad news, unfortunately, is not so much that many people don't know self-defense law, because a lot of people have taken the CCW class and they've been taught, quote-unquote, self-defense law. Uh, the bad news is that a lot of what they've been taught, sometimes most of what they've been taught, is simply wrong. It's bad information. Uh, in most, if you think about most classes you might have taken in, in college or wherever, uh, you know, you go to a new subject, you don't know anything about it, so you're kind of starting at zero. And by the end of the class, you hope to have learned 100% of whatever that curriculum <laughs> is for that class. But it's not like that with self-defense law, in my experience. In my experience, most of the students who come to one of my classes don't start at zero. They start at negative 20 because they've been taught all this bad information. Where is that bad information coming from? Like, Unfortunately, it's mostly coming from well-intentioned firearms instructors who <laughs> think they're passing on good information. And, and it's not that these people are, are bad people or are acting out of mm-hmm. malice. It's just that most of them have themselves never had an opportunity to be taught this stuff in a law-based manner, meaning based on actual statutes, court yeah. decisions your instructions. They're mostly repeating stuff their own instructors taught them, hmm. taught mm-hmm. by their grandfathers. And today, of course, people learn stuff from the internet and YouTube. And right. unfortunately, a lot of that information is simply not actually the law. It's just kind of a mythos that's arisen around self-defense, quote unquote. Could you law. give us an example of that? Like when, when you're, you say you're seeing this happen quite often, you know, I mean, do you have like a top three things, top three myths or some common things that we can look out for? Um, there, there's tons of myths and, and misconceptions. Mostly it's, it's not so much, I mean, partly it's people have been taught bad things like drag the body into the house before you call the police. If you've had to shoot someone. I've heard, I've, I've heard that. that. Right. I, I mean, I, I've heard it just in the last that? week. 
And that's that. In fact, it's that kind of advice that led me into this career because I'd hear people. Because I'm a member of the gun community, I shoot at matches and go to gun shows and gun stores, and I hear people say these things. And to a lawyer, oh my God, that's that's the worst thing you could possibly do because from our perspective, you're actually tampering with the scene. You're altering the evidence. Yeah, that that's what lawyers would call consciousness of guilt evidence. The only reason you're doing that is because. You think the way the evidence is, is not good for you. So you're going to alter it to try to make it look good for you. In effect, what that says is even you believe your use of force was not appropriate. Otherwise, why would you have altered the scene? Why would you? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And it can turn what might have been a perfectly lawful shoot into something that looks to police and prosecutors and judges and juries exactly like manslaughter. So someone who takes that advice is actually, they're putting themselves in prison. Wow. Well, I, I think that the thing that gets so hard is, you know, you said that there's five main pillars, five main laws, yep. right? When it comes to self-defense, um, does that mean that that really lowers the subjectivity of what a self-defense um, situation looks like so that people can be able to identify it easier? Or is it still kind of sub- more subjective case by case? Right. So, uh, one of the one of those five elements of a self-defense claim is reasonable. In fact, I'll, I'll give all five to your audience right sure. now because they're no big secret. Uh, they're innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. And we, we won't have time to go into all of those in depth. Sure. You can buy, is that in your book? Oh, of course. Yeah. You can buy that in the book. Yes. Uh, but um, one of them is reasonableness. And that essentially means that your perceptions, your decisions, your actions in self-defense have to be reasonable. If they're unreasonable, they don't qualify as lawful self-defense. And reasonableness is measured from two perspectives. One, your subjective good faith belief. So you have to have genuinely believed you were acting in Mm self-defense. But that subjective belief by itself is not sufficient. It also has to be objectively reasonable, meaning a theoretical, reasonable and prudent person in your position would have had the same subjective belief. So an irrational even of genuinely held in good faith belief that you need to act in self-defense, if that belief is nevertheless irrational, that's not lawful self-defense. So it has to be subjectively reasonable and objectively reasonable. And unfortunately, a lot of well-intentioned, normally law-abiding people get jammed up on this because they perceive something that they genuinely believe is scary, that they need to defend themselves against. Um, we, we had a case not long ago just outside of uh, Nashville, Tennessee, where a woman was in a Walmart parking lot for some reason, these things happen in Walmart parking lots a lot, and I'm not sure why. I know. <laughs> uh, but she was in a Walmart parking lot, and some guy approached her, asked for a light, uh, and she drew a handgun on him, pointed the handgun at him. And she ended up getting arrested uh, and charged with serious felonies uh, because the police concluded that no one doubted that she was genuinely scared of this guy. She had a subjective right. fear of this guy. Sure. But she was not able to articulate why that subjective fear was objectively reasonable. She wasn't able to articulate what it was about the guy that created a reasonable perception that he was a deadly threat against which she would have been entitled to use her gun. Hmm. And because her subjective belief was not objectively reasonable, she ended up charged with felonies. Did she pull the trigger or just pull the gun? Just pointed the gun. But people, this is the other problem. So part of where people get in trouble is they're taught bad information. So they have actual knowledge in their head that's bad. Mm-hmm. The other way people get into trouble is, is what they don't know, what they don't understand about the system. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that people don't recognize that the moment you make someone else aware that you have a gun and you make them aware for the purpose of changing their behavior, which is what we do in self-defense, right? We say, 
we put our hand on the, on the grip of our gun. We put the other hand out. We say, stay mm -hmm. back. I've got a gun, right? Well, we just made that person aware we have a gun for the purpose of changing their behavior. That's all the elements for an aggravated assault charge. Aggravated assault mm -hmm. is putting another person in imminent fear of death or grave bodily harm. That's what you've just done. I didn't now, realize that. I didn't know that. Just absolutely. by that action of... Now, many jurisdictions man. might use their discretion not to charge you with aggravated assault. Right. But they can. If they don't do it, it's not because they can't. It's because they've chosen not to. And of course, it's very dangerous to put essentially aggravated assault with a firearm can easily be decades in prison. So it's very hazardous to put decades of your life at the mm -hmm. discretion of some prosecutor who you don't know and he doesn't know you. Now, of course, if you're actually facing a threat, you put your hand on your gun, you tell him to stay, stay back. You have checked all the boxes for aggravated assault. Now what you need to do is raise the legal defense of self-defense to justify what would otherwise be a criminal act. And the other thing people don't realize is self-defense is extremely binary. So just like there's a criminal charge, once you're facing a criminal charge, you raise the legal defense of self-defense. And self-defense is what we call a perfect defense. If you're successful in arguing it, you have zero criminal liability for your threat or use of force. Zero. What you did was simply not a crime under the law because it was lawful self-defense. But it's binary. It's like an old school light switch. It's either on or off. If you mm -hmm. fail self-defense, you have 100% criminal liability for that use of force. It's not mitigated down. It's not reduced. So either you have no criminal liability or you're looking at a couple decades in prison for an aggravated assault charge. But it's almost, it's almost like, I mean, as a, as a woman, it's almost like it's telling me like I have to be in the act of actually being assaulted right. to be able to justify that that's what you were going to do. I mean, how are you supposed to ward off, fend off it even getting to that point? Like even well, escalating to the point where they are able to get their hands on me or get close enough to cause harm. Right. Because we don't so, want that. I mean, I think- No, like, of course not. You can't wait until the attack's in progress, right? That, that, that's a losing proposition. Uh, are either of you firearms instructors by any chance? Yeah. I, I mean, I have NRA certification. Yeah. Okay. So you've probably had the experience that most firearms instructors have had in the difference between instructing women and instructing men, right? Uh, men think they know everything. They can be very difficult <laughs> students, right? They show up with ego. Women show up. They want to be taught. They listen to what you tell them. They execute the correct way. They end up performing often far better than the men showing up to the class do. Uh, it's often the same in my experience in the classes I teach on self-defense law. The, the women tend to be much more uh, open-minded and often the men, unfortunately, are more prone to show up with negative 20 knowledge when they walk into the class. <laughs> yeah. This is a question I get from women all the time. And that is, well, do I have to wait? until the guy's actually punching me before I can act in self-defense? And the answer is no, uh, both from a technical legal perspective and a practical perspective. So from a technical legal perspective, what self-defense allows you to do is use defensive force to stop an eminent attack, an attack that's about okay. to mm -hmm. uh, You don't have to wait until you're hit. Uh, you don't have to suffer so much as a scratch before you can use force in self-defense, mm -hmm. but you do need to have been facing some eminent threat, a threat that's okay. about to be executed right now. The question then arises, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm facing an eminent threat? Where, where, where good guys like us tend to get into trouble in these situations is not at the extreme ends of the use of force continuum, right? If there's no threat against us, obviously we don't do anything. Uh, if someone steps out of a doorway with a machete, you just you just solve that problem, right? There's no right. complicated legal analysis there. Where people tend to get into trouble is in between those two extremes, in the middle, 
where things are ambiguous, where it's uncertain what's happening. Mm -hmm. Is that person a threat? And a common question I get, especially from women, is they'll say something along the lines of, well, Andrew, what if I, what if I had to work late one night? I work in an office building. Uh, it's 10 o'clock at night. I walk out to the parking garage to get to my car. Pretty much everyone else has left already. And then suddenly I realize there's some guy walking 30 feet behind me. I've never seen him before. I don't know him. He's dressed kind of down. Um, there's something about him that's just setting off alarm bells in my head. Now, I know I can't just turn around and shoot him. He hasn't. <laughs> right. right? Uh, but, but he's really scaring me. It feels like he's following me. Maybe his car just happens to be parked where near my car is. But what can I do in that situation? And one thing you can do is use things like your voice, verbal commands to strip away the ambiguity from that situation, to clarify what's happening. Turn to that guy, point at him, and tell him to stay the F away from you. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if he's a normal guy, what's he going to do? He's oh, going to say, sorry, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, wow, yeah. You're, whoa. you're crazy, lady, right? Yeah. He's certainly not going to come any closer. <laughs> right. If he doesn't do that, if he continues to close on you while you're screaming at him to stay back, that's consistent with someone who's a threat. Now you've stripped away the ambiguity, right? There is no lawful explanation for that kind of conduct. And it's not just a subjective speculative fear of harm. Now you're able to articulate in an evidence-based way why your perception of an imminent threat was mm -hmm. a reasonable perception. You can tell the police, the lawyers, uh, you were screaming at that guy to stay back and he kept coming closer. Uh, hmm. No one's going to be confused about that. Yeah. Well, it, go ahead, Amy. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like it is so important how you articulate what happened that it almost would make more sense to not, to not give a police report until you've consulted an attorney. Is that how you advise people? So we spend almost an hour of our full day class talking about interacting with the police and the aftermath of a use of force event. So obviously we can't cover all that content. Sure. Here. There's really, uh, there's really three ap approaches that can be taken. One is to literally say nothing uh, on one end of the spectrum. The other is to blather away and just give the cops a detailed explanation of everything you think happened. Um, and in between those two, uh, there's, I think, an, a more optimal approach for responsible concealed carriers who've thought through these issues in detail ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, if someone's an actual criminal, they should definitely not talk to the police. Nothing good is going to happen to them. And if you're someone who even you have a concealed carry license, but you haven't thought through these things really in depth, you probably shouldn't be saying anything to the police either because you have no idea what you might say that could get you in trouble. Yeah. So, for most people, I think that's probably the best approach. I do think you leave value on the table if you take that approach, because I think it's there. What we recommend is the optimal approach is something we call the say little approach. So don't say everything, don't say nothing, but there are a few specific things you might want to tell the police, identify witnesses, identify mm -hmm. evidence, make sure that stuff doesn't disappear. People like us don't get in trouble in self-defense cases because there's too much evidence in the case. We get in trouble when there's too little evidence consistent with our claim of self-defense and our claim of self-defense begins to look speculative or fabricated. The, the risk with the say little approach is you need to be disciplined enough to say little, say those specific things, and then no more than that. And I used to recommend that approach kind of in a blanket fashion. And then we, for our live classes, we purchased a very high-end shooting simulator uh, system $20,000 shooting simulator. And we started running people through the simulator at the end of the live class. 
and we would have them, uh, you know, solve that threat problem with a little fake gun. And then they'd have to explain to us what they did, why they did it, uh, their, their rationale for their use of force decisions. And they were a wreck. Uh, they couldn't do anything. Their brains were not working anymore. And yeah. this is after 30 to 60 seconds of a completely fabricated video threat. They were in no actual danger. But they couldn't remember what they saw. They couldn't remember what they did. They couldn't remember when they did it. And when I saw people, even under that very modest stress, uh, their cognitive abilities break down to that level, I began to grow concerned that telling those people to try this more disciplined, say little approach may not be the best thing for them. So hmm. for most people, I recommend they say as little as possible, mm -hmm. uh, maybe nothing. Um, for people who are what I would call, you know, really professional about this kind of stuff. And these would be the same people who conceal carry and dry fire three or four times a week. You know, I'm talking about that kind of person. They're really mm -hmm. dedicated to this craft. I think those people have a very high prospect of being able to execute a say little approach in a disciplined fashion. But someone who's not willing to make that kind of commitment beforehand, I, I, it's probably too risky an approach. What about the situation where, you know, you, you have your, you've drawn your gun and it makes them stop. And then you're, do you tell them to get on the ground and call the cops? I mean, like, and then are you liable in that situation? I mean, like, well, it, I know we could do scenarios all day long. I could ask right. you scenarios like for, sure. oh my gosh, what about this? And what about this? But you know, there's so well, because much Because I think it goes think back through. to like some of the different things that we've been taught. Mm -hmm. We've had discussions with previous guests or just other people in, in the industry and everyone seems to have a different perspective on sort of that. Well, am I going to pull my gun? Like, assume, like you said, if it's, if it's an imminent threat and some say, no, if you, you know, you just pull it, if you feel, you know, any kind of just uneasiness and it's like there's that fine line of now you're looking at possible felony charges and, and everything else down the line and it's like well again subjective versus reality and then you've got to take that situation to the police and then event potentially with lawyers and to a court where right. you know people who don't know what you're where you're coming from or what the situation is is going to have to then review that information I so, also don't want to find myself in a situation where I am so concerned about the law that I fail to do anything. Well, because I think, and, you too, know, right. I think there are some people that think that as well It's like they don't care. They're like, well, if my life's that day, it doesn't matter. Like, I'll worry about that later. Yeah. yeah un unfortunately, those people are uh, contributing nicely to my kid's college fund. <laughs> most, um, most of the cases I work on are cases involving normally law-abiding people who've never been in trouble with the law before, who now are charged with aggravated assault because they pulled the gun on someone. Never fired a shot, never shot anybody, never killed anybody, just pointed that gun at someone, and now they're facing 10 or 20 years in prison because they've committed aggravated assault with a weapon. So what people need to do is they need to understand this self-defense law well enough so they have a very clear understanding of where the legal boundary is. Mm -hmm. When have the legal conditions actually been met for the use of deadly defensive force? And prior to that point, don't go to the gun. It doesn't mean you need to be defenseless. You can use things like OC. You can use non-deadly means of self-defense. But they need to know they can't go to the gun until those legal conditions have been met. Well, if that's the standard, and it is the standard you'll be uh, judged by in court, if that's the standard, you need to know where that legal boundary actually is. Not in terms of what your buddy the cop told you or your real estate lawyer told you right. or some dude in the concealed mm -hmm. carry class told you, but in what the law actually says. Because if you're in court 
No one gives a damn about what those other people might have told you. Sure. It doesn't matter if you had a well-intentioned uh, belief in what the law was, if your belief was incorrect. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're wrong, that's on you. That's not on anybody else. Now, the, the, the challenge is you need to know where that legal boundary is. And once it's been achieved, you need to have the discipline to go to that gun quick. Uh, because once the legal conditions have been met for deadly defensive force, that means by definition you're facing an imminent threat of death or grave bodily harm. So it's extremely binary. It's no gun, no gun, no gun, gun right now. Uh, now, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to shoot because a lot of times you'll get the gun up and the other person will realize they brought a knife to a gunfight and they don't want to do that. They'll stop being a threat. And then you may feel, all right, now I can afford to be patient. I don't need to shoot. Mm-hmm. We'll see how the situation develops. But once you have the gun up, then you only need two-tenths of a second. Then if you, it turns out that you do need to shoot. Uh, often, you can afford to be patient. And if you can afford to be patient safely without giving up your ability to actually defend yourself should things go sideways, you're definitely better off being patient. I don't want anyone to believe that I'm encouraging folks to shoot when they don't need to shoot. But if you cannot shoot that person, you're doing yourself an enormous favor uh, if only because the legal liability you're facing for an aggravated assault, as bad as that is, is way lower than if you've actually shot someone. Does or, that mean that person would have to call the cops and turn you in for an aggravated assault? I mean, and, and you would still have to be there in order no, to get that, charged? I mean, that, I mean, theoretically speaking, that person could run away, never be seen by the cops. The cops could show up and you could tell them your story. And your story is a story of aggravated assault. Hmm. In other words, you're telling the cops, I pointed a gun at someone, and they say, why did you do that? And your explanation is not legally sufficient to justify pointing a gun at someone. Now, practically speaking, they're unlikely to bring a case where they don't have a victim that they can point to. But people often seem to believe that bad guys don't call the cops. I can tell you, bad guys call the cops all the time. Now, they don't call the cops and say, hey, I was mugging this chick and she pointed a gun at me. Right. And they say, oh, I was just going about my business and this crazy lady pointed a gun at me. Uh, and of they course. can describe the gun. They have your car's license plate. They have all this because, you know, this all went down. They're just leaving out the part where they were the aggressor. They're outraged because you have to keep in mind, bad guys who commit robberies or rapes, they don't do this once. This is their, in their mind, this is their profession. This is what they do for a living. And there's a, there's a process that's supposed to be followed. They threaten you and get what they want and you give it to them. Mm-hmm. When you violate that process, you're messing up their day. You're messing up their job. That's not how it's supposed to work. Keep in mind, if these guys committed a robbery and the first time they did it, someone pointed a gun in their face, they'd never commit a robbery again. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the reason they keep doing it is because they keep getting away right. with it. It's mm-hmm. successful for them. So they're not expecting someone to point a gun at them. When someone does, they're like, outraged that this is not the way things are supposed to work. And it's not at all unusual for them to call the cops, which is why, especially if you've deployed deadly force, even if you haven't fired, you've just made the other person aware. It's really important that you call the cops. Uh, So it's not just them calling the cops cops having to respond to you. Where, where does, um, you know, we hear in the media a lot about stand your ground laws. And I think there's a lot of people that may not really understand what that actually means. Do you have time to break that? Is that something that is easy to explain really quick and how that actually works in a self-defense situation? Yeah. So unfortunately, a lot of these self-defense cases have been uh, become extremely politicized, often because there's a racial component in the case. 
Um, often it's a white person or a white police officer who shot a black person. And so we get a kind of a, a, a racial dynamic builds around the case. And anytime something's politicized, people will start to define and redefine terms to mean things that are favorable to them in a political sense, but aren't what they really mean in a legal sense. And one of those is stand your ground. Huh. Many people seem to believe that stand your ground means that if I'm merely subjectively scared of someone, I can shoot them dead. It's a license to kill, a license to murder. You'll hear that uh, associated all the time with stand your ground. That's not what stand your ground means at all. So I mentioned earlier, there's five elements of a claim of self-defense, up to five. Uh, one of those elements is the element of avoidance. Do you have a legal duty to try to retreat before you can act in self-defense? That's actually the most commonly excused element. So there's only about 14 states that impose that element of avoidance. The other states actually only have four elements of a self-defense claim because they don't have that element of avoidance. Oh. Uh, the states that don't impose that element are effectively stand your ground states. They're not imposing a legal duty to retreat before you can act in self-defense. Now, all the other elements are still required. So you still have to be the innocent party. You still have to be facing an imminent threat. You still have to be using proportional force in self-defense, and you still have to be acting reasonably. You just don't have to have a legal duty to retreat before you can defend yourself if those other elements have been met. That's all Stand Your Ground does. It takes away one of the five elements of a self-defense claim. Um, it doesn't do, it doesn't create some weird parallel method of arguing self-defense. It doesn't mean you can just shoot someone because you're subjectively afraid. Uh, it doesn't mean any of that. Now, where a lot of confusion arises, unfortunately, is um, now Florida is famous for its stand your ground law. Florida yeah. stopped its stand your ground in, in 2005. But the truth is there were many states that were stand your ground long before Florida adopted stand, a stand your ground statute. Believe it or not, California is a stand-your-ground state. Uh, they don't have a stand-your-ground statute. They're wow. a stand-your-ground state because of court decisions dating all the way back to the 1800s. So really? California has been a stand-your-ground state well over 150 years um, because it's in the court decisions and court law is just as good as statutory law. But when Florida adopted stand-your-ground, which means they said you no longer have a legal duty to retreat, that's all stand-your-ground means, they, at the same time, they adopted another statute called self-defense immunity. Now, self-defense immunity doesn't change the definition of self-defense. It simply says, whatever the definition of self-defense is, if you qualify, you're immune from prosecution and you're immune from civil suit. Unfortunately, because both these things were adopted at the same time, no duty to retreat and legal immunity, they both became labeled with the phrase, stand your ground. And it creates enormous confusion because... Someone will start talking about stand your ground here and another person about stand your ground there. And they're actually talking about completely different things. No wow. duty to retreat, legal immunity, completely different. But the, the conversation becomes enormously confused because they think they're talking about the same thing. And people listening to them think they're talking about the same thing because they're both saying stand your ground. But in fact, it's two completely different conversations. Yeah, I would. Ha I would. I'm right there. I'm not person. Right. <laughs> I'm like, I guess every time they say, A, I never really knew what that meant. And B, I just assumed that that was like a, a, a cross the board, stand your ground means the same thing. So thank you for that. That's very sure. good to know. Yeah. Well, that's part of what I mean when I say people have, they start these classes with 20% negative information. Sure. Because they yeah. hear it mentioned all the time and they think they know what it means because all these people talking about it appear to know what they're talking about, but in fact, they don't. And so mm -hmm. lots of bad information is being piped into people's heads 
Uh, and until it's shown to them what these terms actually mean, when you get into court, they, it just creates a lot of confusion. With your classes, do you break it down state by state and and go over, you know, because I know there's weird laws in New Jersey and, diff- and from like home invasions and all this kind of, there's like different laws, right? I mean, like across the country. So do your classes break it down like that? They do. So uh, I mentioned earlier that defensive person's law, meaning self-defense and defense of other people, is pretty consistent across the 50 states. It's about 80% the same. That's not true of defensive property law. Defensive property law varies enormously from state to state, uh, especially aspects around the use of deadly force in the context of highly defensible property, like your home, a place of business, an occupied vehicle. Enormous variation. So that really has to be taught on a state-specific level. Uh, So when we teach a live class, obviously we're teaching in one particular physical location. Mm -hmm. So we make that class specific to that state. If 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 we're teaching in a place that borders near another state, we might cover two states. I do teach one class in Montana where we actually do four states in one class because nobody lives up there and you have to go up <laughs> four states in a large enough class. Uh, in terms of our, our DVD, the DVD version of that live class, what we do is we have what we call our, our level one core class, which is four DVDs, about eight hours of instruction. Um, and that covers all the, the basic principles translated into plain English from the legalese. It's not state-specific because it draws some statutes and court decisions of all different states to illustrate how different states take different approaches. And then we supplement that with state-specific DVDs. So we have state-specific DVDs, which is an additional about another hour and a half of content that's specific to the statutes, court decisions, jury instructions for each specific state. So the way it would work if someone wanted the DVD class, they'd buy the core class DVD and then whatever specific state-specific ones they wanted. And that also means we don't have to sell them the four-disc core class over and over again. They buy that once and then they can buy one or five or 10 or 20 different state-specific DVDs separately if they want. The yeah. states are covered in the book as well? Uh, they are, but only in a very high-level format. So if we had a book that covered all 50 states in detail, it would be a 10,000-page book that cost $350 and nobody would be able to afford it. Uh, so what we do in the book is we, we provide a very plain English explanation of all these legal principles. And in the back of the book, we have corresponding tables for each chapter that list all the relevant states, statutes. Yeah, I noticed that D.C. wasn't one of them, that I had to go online for that. <laughs> right. So D.C. is not in the book. When, it, when we last updated the book, we weren't yet covering D.C. Since then, I've begun teaching live classes in D.C., so I had to learn it myself as well. Well, uh, I have to confess, I, I originally didn't include DC because I don't like DC much. And I, figured, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I one one last question for you. Um, so for for people who do decide to get their um, you know consult hand, handgun license and, and move on and take that next step, how much do you recommend doing the insurance programs and um, those those kind of things that help with, I guess, legal costs and all of that. Is that something that you guys talk about and recommend in any of your classes? Well, there's really, uh, there's two, there's an initial question that has to be asked. And that is, it's just a general insurance question. Do you think you need insurance, right? Just like if you need homeowners or car, I mean, of course, car may be mandatory. uh, But different people have different levels of risk tolerance, different people have different levels of assets that might need protecting. So, if someone's young and they don't have anything worth taking, then what, what do you need insurance for? At least from the, in the civil context. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, 
The other, now, if you decide you do, you feel like you do need insurance, well, then you need to look at a very, and by the way, almost none of these programs actually offer insurance. Uh, typically, how they work, uh, not always, but typically is the company promises to reimburse you for legal expenses. They're insured. Mm. So they have an insurance company. They're the client of the insurance company, and they're insured for payments they pay to members. Uh, but the member themselves doesn't have any insurance. Gotcha. And so you happen to find yourself in the unfortunate situation that you have to pull and use your firearm. Is there a specific type of attorney that you are supposed to call? Like, are there, are there, is there a special name for a certain attorney that you should look up? I mean, do you guys have resources for that, that people can go and find them in their area? Where would you point them? Well, I mean, you'd want a criminal defense attorney, obviously, because you'd be, if we're talking about the criminal context, and that's mostly where I focus is on the criminal context. Okay. Uh, the, the trick is, unfortunately, that not all criminal defense attorneys are created equal. Uh, just like any other trade or craft, there's really, really good ones, and then there's ones that, frankly, are not so good. Uh, there's plenty of criminal defense attorneys whose business model is essentially they, they just suck clients in, and they crank the handle, and they do the minimal amount of work for each client. Because I, I hate to say it, but if you're a criminal defense attorney, uh, generally, most of your clients are Surprise, criminals. Uh, so right. even even in that situation where, you know, the aggravated assault or just the drawing your weapon and the guy ran away, that's a criminal defense attorney? Criminal defense attorney, right. If okay. you're facing prospective criminal liability, you need a criminal defense attorney. Now, so how do you know if someone's good or not, if a criminal defense attorney is any good? Uh, well, if you were a criminal, you would know because you'd have a lot of experience with them. <laughs> Obviously, you're not. Uh, frankly, the best thing you can do for yourself is spend 25 bucks, maybe not even that much, uh, and just give yourself a fundamental education in what the, the legal principles are, the legal issues are, so that when you talk with an attorney, because basically what you'll be doing is interviewing attorneys. Mm -hmm. Right. You'll, you'll meet with a whole bunch of them, and you better choose someone that you really trust because your life is in this person's hands, right? Mm -hmm. If they screw up, they're not going to jail. You're going to jail. So you really need to trust this person. Uh, the best thing you can do is give yourself a basic uh, education so you know what questions to ask and you have some sense of what kinds of answers you should expect to get back. Because if you don't have that, if you're not at least an informed consumer, any criminal defense attorney is going to sound like a genius mm -hmm. because you have no idea what they're talking about. Right. But I can assure you they're not all geniuses. So you need sure. to be an informed consumer. Now, yeah. I mean, the soft cover of our book is 25 bucks. If you become one of our patrons on Patreon, you can get the book for free. And we only charge $4.99 a month to be a patron. It's 17 cents a day. You get the book for free. Awesome. Uh, if, if you really don't want to spend any money or as little as possible, you can get the Kindle version for, I think it's nine bucks and change on, on Amazon. So when you think about it, you can learn enough to not just have that informed discussion with an attorney, but have some understanding of where the legal boundaries actually are. So hopefully you don't cross them mm -hmm. for nine bucks and change. So, I mean, I've started reading, I'm probably maybe a quarter through the book. That's a pretty, it, pretty easy read, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it, what it does is I think we always talk about mindset and it starts getting you into that thought process of, oh, I need to think about this. And these are all the other things that I need to start taking into consideration. So I think, you know, getting that book for someone who is a concealed carrier gun owner is, is a good kind of gateway to start 
down that path of trying to well, figure Well, I have money left on my Amazon gift card from my birthday. So, and I've, I've seriously been waiting. Like I'm always buying books uh, on Amazon. And so I'm like, I, I need a good one. I am definitely going to buy this book. Um, what did, what did people get? You said that, that they join up is Patreon a membership. It's a monthly membership. Yeah. So uh, Patreon is a, uh, an internet service that hosts probably thousands of people. I'm just one of them. Uh, but essentially, that's where I do my daily uh, blog posting. That's where I post up my videos. We do, uh, we do a video analysis of a case, a self-defense case every week. Awesome. Uh, we keep recordings of our, our weekly live shows there. And people who are our patrons for five bucks a month get access to the last three months worth of content, which is hours and hours and hours and hours of self-defense law expertise. But you don't have to pay. I mean, if people are only interested in the last week's worth of content, that's up there for free. So again, I always encourage people to take advantage of the free access first. Sure. Uh, so they get a sense of, of what we're offering. And, and the bottom line I'd like your, your uh, viewers and listeners to, to keep in mind is um, where that legal boundary is, is really important for a couple of reasons. One is, well, if you're outside the legal boundary, you're in a lot of trouble. Because as I say, self-defense as a justification is binary. It goes away completely. But if you're inside that boundary, it's extremely difficult to prosecute, prosecute you effectively. It's almost impossible. So if you know where that boundary is and you can stay well within it and you can do that and still effectively defend yourself, you've made yourself really hard to convict. And prosecutors don't like to bring those cases to trial. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors... Um, for the most part, have conviction rates of trial in excess of 90%, sometimes in excess of 95%. And it's not just because they're great lawyers, although many of them are. It's also because they get to pick the cases they bring to trial. Mm -hmm. And so they only, if your favorite sports team could pick who would play it against, they'd have a 90% <laughs> win sure. sure. Right? So prosecutors like to take cases to trial that are easy wins, and they don't like to take cases to trial that look tough. Look tough. Make yourself look like the tough case. And the best way to do that is know where that legal boundary is and stay well within it. And you become a really unattractive target for prosecution. Andrew, thank you so much. Yeah. I could sit and talk to you for those seven and eight hours, like you said, that you could sure. sit and talk to us for. And I, I would love to. I'm going to go get your book. Um, highly recommend all of you going and checking that out. Check out yeah, The Law of Self-Defense. Super we'll important. We'll have all the links up on the site and everywhere else. We'll yep. Emily, well, you'll send them to, to the Patreon page, to his page, everything that we need mm -hmm. to, to send them over to. So um, if you guys have not done so yet, we would love for you to go subscribe to Not Your Average Gun Girls. You can uh, listen to us on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher Radio, on uh, pretty much every platform that you can listen to a podcast. <laughs> uh, we appreciate you guys taking time to listen and join in. And again, thank you, Andrew. Uh, we will see you guys all same time, same place next week. Thank you guys. Take care. The Not Your Average Gun Girls podcast and its related companies, Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com, strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.